3: Oh hi, hello, welcome, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, that woman who could talk about the ancient world in literally any and every form, Live, And that is particularly true in today's episode. I spoke with author and truly lovely human being, Elodie Harper, about her new book, The House with the Golden Door. <gasps> So last year I spoke with Elodie about the first book in this series, it's called The Wolf Den, all about Amara and her life inside the Lupinar, the wolf den, the brothel in ancient Pompeii. And now I'm speaking with Elodie about the sequel, The House with the Golden Door. We talk about the book, but we also talk about just ancient Pompeii and life in the ancient world, particularly writing about enslaved people in the ancient world. The topic is tough, obviously, but Elodie has just such fascinating things to say about writing that world and what we do and don't know about that kind of life. And it's such an important topic, too, that's so rarely discussed. These books are really so great. I highly recommend them. But even if you haven't read either of them, you're going to appreciate this conversation for the ancient Rome of it all. The ancient Pompeii. And if you haven't looked into the artifacts and graffiti and mosaics that we have preserved from pompeii through the eruption of mount vesuvius i recommend you do some googling because it's truly incredible in these books elodie is looking at the complexities of life in that world particularly through the eyes of someone who was enslaved but as this new book opens has been freed What that looks like, how it changes you, how it doesn't change you, and just so much more. It's a great conversation. They're great books, and Elodie is just so lovely to talk to. I will always have her on to talk about this series and I don't know, Pompeii, literally anything. Plus, I just love the book, so it is really quite nice for me. So, let's get into the Pompeii of it all. conversations, life outside the wolf den, ancient Pompeii and the house with the golden door with Elodie Harper. Why don't we kind of start with like, so this is the second book in your series, which must have been so interesting to write. But it also reminded me, you know, because it's been a year since I read Wolf Den now, um, how interesting and difficult it must be to write characters that are in a very real world and enslaved and and dealing with covering enslavement I'm going to start this out real heavy apparently but dealing with like writing enslavement in a way that you want it to be realistic and you want to express the horrors of it and not downplay that but also make it like enjoyable to read so I'm so curious like kind of how how you go about dealing with that in your own head even
5: that's such an interesting question honestly um yeah and that actually did preoccupy me in in writing it so I guess you know, the starting point in many ways is I just feel passionate about the representation of enslaved people from the ancient world because I think that while we're all very aware of the horrors of slavery, there's a tendency to think, oh, well, it was a long time ago, so it wasn't as bad. You know, people are enslaved in all the myths. It's no big deal in the myths. You know, it's kind of just an accepted fact of life. And it's very rarely told from the enslaved person's point of view. And I think that's that's the crucial Um, And so, you know, kind of reading about the lives of enslaved people um, in the ancient world, specifically the ancient Roman world, um, you know, there's some great books on this, like Robert Knapp's Invisible Romans. It's all about trying to go to sources that weren't written um, about enslaved people by elite male writers, which is where most of our information comes from. But, you know, kind of reading between the lines as to how they might have felt about their own lives So I did find the research very fascinating Um, and you've got this whole preoccupation with family basically um, in like the epigraphs that people left if they were enslaved or if they'd been freed. There's like a much greater preoccupation with with, uh, relationships. And I think this kind of feeds into the fact that um, when you're owned by somebody else, your relationships are so unstable. Um, You know, the only legally recognized relationship between an enslaved person and someone else was with their owner. So your wife, your children, your parents, none of these relationships had any legal status, which meant that you could all be ripped apart at at any time. And of course that's horrifying, but it's also interesting to me and kind of a testament to the human spirit and human dignity that people just put so much passion and dedication into overcoming this, And that these relationships were important to them um, and that they went to great lengths to protect one another, to be together. I found that very moving and inspiring actually. And there was a line that often um, played in my head from um, the writer Petronius's book, um, The Satiricon, in which uh, a freed character says, um, I bought my wife out of slavery so that nobody could wipe their hands on her hair. Um, And it's, it's horrifying because you realize you know people were just like props they weren't even granted humanity you know like somebody wiping their dirty hands on someone but it's also a testament of love that this person bought the person they loved out of slavery so although there's pain a lot of pain in that one sentence you know both the person who was being abused the person who loved them witnessing the abuse there's also a lot of defiance in that miniature story in that sentence of you know rescuing the person that you love the pride that you felt in rescuing the person that you love so I guess that's how I approached it was that yes the conditions that people lived in were horrendous but actually in writing about people's lives from that period you're trying to return to them the humanity that they were themselves expressing and fighting for Um, so I I felt strongly about that actually Hmm.
3: Well, and I think it is so important, like you were saying at the beginning, too. Just the the idea of representation in that way, and and it, we don't talk about it enough. It just becomes a sort of like, yes, you know, ancient Greece and Rome, and certainly like sort of everywhere in the Mediterranean, like had slavery. But I do think it often gets left out or just sort of glossed over as just yeah, a fact of the time versus something that completely, you know, ruled so many people's lives and dictated every single thing
5: about their world. Exactly. And there's a difference between sort of passing anachronistic judgments on that world for the fact that they had slavery. Because obviously, unlike later forms of enslavement, you know, there was no kind of mass emancipation movement. There was no sort of philosophical um, emancipation movement. So people didn't have access to that, um, you know, way of thinking. But that doesn't mean that people were okay with it or that they enjoyed being enslaved or that it was okay. You can look at the past without applying anachronistic judgments of, well, they should have known better or this, that, and the other, Um, but at the same time say, you know, okay, this wasn't okay. And the people experiencing it on some level actually knew this. And I found that very interesting. And even sort of reading the writing of elite um, Romans who were free, um, you know, they have this kind of visceral sense of horror that they would hate this to happen to them. It's much like the treatment of, of women, really, and, and sexual assault that I found in, in Roman writing. What What I find more interesting is, less that some writers just kind of accept this as like well this is just how things are and they're quite lazy and they're thinking about it like some more thoughtful writers are conscious of the horror you know they're just pleased it's not happening to them um so I thought that was really interesting when I when I read ancient texts actually
3: Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing. I mean, it's something that comes up a lot for me on the podcast because, you know, obviously my whole, I've sort of built this show on, on discussing these things and recognizing, you know, sexual assault when it is sexual assault. And so often people, it less so now, thankfully, but certainly in the early days of the podcast, like my bad reviews are all like Oh we know that sexual assault is bad, but it was just there so you don't have to comment on it every time and it's like yeah, we we know it's bad and they did too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the idea that they didn't is nonsense. It's just that the writers that we have tended not necessarily to to actually like address it as a bad thing, but objectively we know that people back then would have recognized it as bad regardless and regardless of whether it's a god or otherwise they can recognize you know lack of consent and just or the violence even inherent in sexual assault a lot of times that's why I really enjoy reading and I know if people have sort of different opinions on how it comes across and maybe it's the translations I read but I really enjoy Ovid's Metamorphoses because he very often seems to like actually register that something is wrong
5: i so agree with you about ovid and i nearly mentioned him with Mm. this 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 whole issue of of sexual assault i think he's a really key writer on this because sometimes it is titillating and he's doing it for you know to, to make it sound sexy or whatever but there is this great sense of unease like his knowledge that this isn't nice that this isn't enjoyable for the other person um he's really interesting in that way
3: yeah, he seems to actually recognize the, the horror involved, even though, I mean, obviously he's writing about it. He's writing typically like retold Greek myths with his own sort of slant on them. and But he's like the only source we really have that, that actually describes these events as horrific instead of just like a statement of something that happened. And I, I really appreciate Specifically, *Metamorphoses* for that because I mean I, I haven't read a, a ton of his other except for some of the *Ars Amatoria*, which is something else entirely. Uh, but yeah, it's it's so interesting to to have that reference point of like, okay, well at least we know somebody was at least willing to write about it, and certainly so many people saw it that way. I'm sure most women also recognized it. You know, we just don't don't necessarily have it surviving today, but that doesn't mean that that they didn't feel it. So yeah, I think I think what you're doing by writing, writing enslaved people in this way. Cause I think it's also really complex too. You know, Amara is like, not, not perfect. She has is dealing with so much herself and dealing with like also being free and living in that world and how that affects her comparatively to, to when she was enslaved, which also leads me to, I'm so fascinated by the intricacies of being free, but not being free that, that are like examined in this book. So like, yeah, what what were you thinking about that? Like how much is it based in research? I'm imagining most of it. I mean, really anything about
5: that? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I think the status of, of freed men and women is really fascinating because we think of like manumission, oh yay, they're free. And of course the sort of really fundamental aspect, um, they are free. So they they have, they regain bodily integrity, and they regain some social status, you know, a significant amount of social status by that, by that happening, and, you know, control over their own des- destiny to a much larger extent. However, there were all these kind of contractual, and um, kind of traditional obligations that you as a freed person would then have to the person who freed you. So as, as a woman, you might have sexual obligations to the man that freed you if, if he did so for romantic Um, reasons you know if you were a freed man um, you know working in the business um, you would have to you know still do a certain amount of work for your previous owner Um, you couldn't just go off and set up business on your own necessarily at all Um, you know you'd still retain some kind of financial dependence on them or some financial obligations towards them all kinds of kind of social and and other obligations. So there's in that sense you're not free. You're also inhabiting this kind of liminal state where you're neither fully free, like a freeborn person or somebody who's never been enslaved, um, nor are you enslaved. So it, it's a really interesting world. Um, and it's interesting that freed people very rarely sort of seem to have married free people. Um, they married other freed people. Um, and you know, there's kind of debate as to why that would be, but I also found like the laws on intimacy really fascinating from that time and kind of horrifying as well. So, um, if you were enslaved and then you were freed, your partner, um, if they were still enslaved, you know, would belong to somebody else. That's why you'd need to free them. And then your children that were born while you were both enslaved, they would belong to somebody else. So you'd need to free them. And if you were a free woman who had a relationship with an enslaved man, you know, there were all kinds of complications there as well that you could, you know, lose your status as, as a free woman. So these really kind of punitive um, laws that were in place, of course, if you were a free man, you could sleep with literally anyone. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, so there were all these kind of, nuances and hierarchies and as you say you could be freed but not really free
3: yeah it's I mean I guess I just had never thought about it that much because that was one of the things that kind of hit me most reading this was like wow it it, I mean it doesn't suck as much obviously it's not as horrific but at the same time like it doesn't change your life as much as you would hope and imagine the idea of being freed would just change your life completely
5: Absolutely. And what I also wanted to explore with Amara is like the complexity of the relationship between somebody who's freed and somebody that previously owned them. So with Felix, you know, it, it's there's it's an extraordinary um Bond that people have between each other. I don't mean a bond as in a bond of affection, but you know, it's a very profound connection that is that is that is forged, um, and particularly with an abusive relationship like Amara's and Felix's. So I also wanted to sort of think about how Amara might navigate that, that she's freed from her legal obligations to Felix. He doesn't own her, but she's not freed from The past of their relationship or you know the power struggle all these kind of things and you know again with rufus her patron you know in in the wolf den she very much sort of projects onto him what she wants to see of of being her savior that he's different from the others um it feels like love because she wants so desperately what he has to offer but then when she gets to know him more as a person and when she has a bit more status how does he respond to that you know, does he really enjoy that aspect of her gaining more power? Yeah. So in terms of just the sort of emotional and psychological dynamics of how that might all have worked, I found that interesting. And and you know, I think there is quite a lot in common of how abusive relationships in the modern world work as well when there are sort of significant power imbalances or abuse that's taken place.
3: Yeah, I I think it- the you know the relationship between Felix and Victoria is such a perfect example of that and the way people often just can't get out of abusive relationships not for lack of really wanting to but just you know for so many psychological reasons uh, and just yeah the way that that can really affect people and you know in in a way that's like not always a happy ending
5: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and then other people like uh, Britannica, you know, some people are able to have zero kind of connection and and bonds. And so she was actually my favorite character to write. I love Britannica. Um, And she's quite different from from many of the other characters in what her goals, her priorities, her sense of herself is. So I wanted to explore that, too, because there were also lots of enslaved people whose you know main feeling was 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 hatred and resentment and defiance too um you know who who simply hated the people who owned them um Mm -hmm. and you know people were murdered by their slaves um and you know enslaved people took revenge and they were defiant and they tried to escape and you know so it we we sometimes, I think as well, can slip into quite a romanticized view of enslavement because some enslaved people did form very close bonds and, you know, emotional or even romantic attachments to the people who owned them. Um, but many didn't as well.
3: Yeah, being able to look at the intricacies of all the different, you know possible relationships and outcomes is is so interesting I I absolutely love Britannica and I'm very excited um for the the gladiator aspect
5: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean um without wanting to give too many spoilers Mm. yeah I'm excited about that as well
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I can only imagine yeah I um it's just it's so interesting and I think because i don't spend much of my time really ever thinking about rome i'm really drawn into this just because pompeii is so fascinating because we have so much evidence that we wouldn't otherwise have and so you get this like this ability to have so much i don't want to say daily life but i guess just like the the most utter normality that we would otherwise never know about because no one ever wrote it down no one's like documenting the graffiti that's around their town and then having that work survive you know two thousand years we just got i don't want to say got so lucky because the people of pompeii did not get lucky but like (laughs) you know looking back like it's just so incredible the the stuff that we do have from them just because of the the not so lucky volcano
5: yeah I'd agree and that's why it's so fun to write about that that place you know and just yeah it's extraordinary the the stuff that survives you know the 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 wheel ruts in the road where you can see where the carts have worn grooves you know you can even see how the doors opened you know that these sort of wooden doors that that went right across the shop fronts because you've got the sliding grooves in the stone. Um, yeah as you say the graffiti I find the graffiti wonderful as well because you hear the voices there when I was saying earlier about not hearing enslaved voices well, the graffiti's different you know that's that's where you hear these voices and one of my favorite sort of contrasting pairs of graffiti so in the wolf den um, I picked on a, a piece of graffiti in Pompeii that's, that's quite horrifying which is um, take hold of your slave girl whenever you want it's your right to use her which is Just awful, um, and very kind of descriptive of what life was like if you're an an enslaved woman. You know, you had literally no agency whatsoever. So that's kind of something we kind of know about. But my favorite piece of graffiti in all of of um, Pompeii is actually written by a slave girl who describes herself as a slave girl called Methae. You know, the the slave girl of um, Cominia. who, you know, she talks about her love of Crestus and that she prays for Venus to look after them both and smile on their love and, and let them be happy. And it's such a sort of sweet and touching and romantic piece of graffiti that is completely at odds with the stuff that's written about enslaved people, that this is how she expressed herself. This is what she had to say was about her love for another person. Um, And it also shows she was literate um you know that she had something intelligent to write it's yeah it's I I really enjoy that aspect of the graffiti and if it weren't for Pompeii you know we'd never have these messages and yeah and all this the other stuff that I put into the books of like the mosaics the paintings you know you can go to the museum and see all these incredibly beautiful artifacts as well
3: I've still never been to Pompeii I'm so mad about it
5: (laughs) you need to go. I
3: know. Yeah. Well, and what you were saying too about just even calling out to the gods and things is always something that interests me, obviously. Uh, and and I I think that that's another kind of daily life thing that, that is sometimes lost because of just time and the things that do get preserved and then we do have it in Pompeii. And so that's sort of leads to the other thing that I've was really interesting about this book is just the way you broke it up through time based on the celebrations and things and so I'm curious kind of what your reasoning was for that or I mean I would I lean towards just like, oh, wanting to talk about all the different <laughs> like celebrations and things that take place. so, yeah,
5: what what were you thinking there? Well, to be honest, that was part of it as well, just because there's so much fun to write about and reimagine. And also, I wanted to sort of show the passage of time in a way that was that felt rooted in in the ancient world. And, you know, I probably if anything, toned back on the religious aspect because it is quite alien for us. And by the, you know, if you overstuff it, it can be, um, it can be too much, it can sort of bog the narrative down too much with explanation. But I feel like the festivals is something that we can kind of get a handle on and, and a way, way in as to just how their, how much their lives were influenced by sort of thoughts about the gods and the seasons um, and, you know, the unpredictability of life uh, and, you know, very different attitudes. So, you know, probably my favourite festival that i write about is one called the lemuria um which is in may which is you know to appease the dark spirits um people who've been murdered or unburied or you know the angry spirits who might come back to haunt the living and you know ovid has a very detailed description of this festival and his his fasti of you know the whole household getting together and making a huge amount of noise to sort of scare the spirits away at midnight and the sort of leader of the household doing this um, kind of recital and throwing the black beans over his shoulder that the spirits will will then take they'll be distracted they'll take the beans and just the whole idea of like whole streets in Pompeii in the dark at midnight performing this ritual I just found it very evocative um, and I wanted to write about it and it takes place at quite a sort of pivotal moment for Amara when she's I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but she's embarking on um, a relationship that could threaten a lot of things about her life, but it's also a way of her, the way I wanted to write that relationship, it's not a kind of straightforward romantic relationship. This is also about two people with very limited choices. um, Their desire for freedom, not just their desire for each other and their desire to make a connection that is theirs um, so, it's as much about wanting to belong, wanting to have family, as it is a kind of romance, if you like, you know, which, as a, you know, from what we were talking about before, that sort of enslaved people and freed people had far fewer choices about who they could have as their family. Um, so, yeah, and that festival I enjoyed writing. And then other ones which are just, you know, just much more fun, like uh, the Nemoria, um, which was. Festival for women, you know, and that they would take torches and visit this grove, and that that this would be a fun time for them where they got some liberty. I find that really interesting about Roman festivals as well. It's often a time when the underdog gets to have a day off or be Mm -hmm. celebrated. So you've got festivals for sex workers, for enslaved, so you know, festivals for sex workers like the Floralia or the Vinalia. Uh, For women, like the Nemoria um, and enslaved people, too, got a holiday then. And then on the Saturnalia, which is for enslaved people. So that's quite an interesting aspect of Roman culture as well, I think, that it wasn't like wall-to-wall oppression. There were like these pressure points when people who normally had very few choices were able um, to have some time off from, from the sort of tough lives that they led. And so I guess that's also why I punctuated it with festivals, because you know, these were points at which maybe anything could happen, things out of the ordinary could happen.
3: Mm -hmm. And I, it's interesting, because you've, you've also set up this whole relationship, you know, between Amara, who is recently freed, but not entirely free. But then she's also interacting with the women from her old life, both free and not entirely free or or rather not not at all free and it was really interesting to see the ways you could then use those moments to have them interact in a different way because obviously she has to act, she has to act a certain way as both like a freed woman and a woman who is a patron of this, you know, fancy guy and and all those different ways in which like,
5: and as a slave owner, and I thought it was really, really important to show that and it's a really dark moment in Amara's story when and why she decides that she needs to own other people. Um, I mean, I don't want to give too many spoilers, like one of her decisions to own somebody is not such a dark one. But ultimately she makes a very commercial choice to use people as a means of gaining profit. Um, And I felt it was important to put that in, although it does complicate the reader's relationship with Amara, because that was very much what happened in the ancient world and freed people did then go on to own other people. Um, And I didn't want to give her, although I made her have a lot of guilt and angst around it as I think, would have been realistic I didn't want to give her anachronistic views of oh you know I can't do this this is so terrible because because people did do this so I wanted her to feel uncomfortable about it um and to sort of explore some of that emotion but yes it is it is you know that that was probably the darkest scene to write when she when she makes that decision
3: well and I think it does make her and the whole story more real to look at the darker sides of it because you know uh- I mean, obviously, writing a novel is all about, you know, the person writing it. But I really appreciate the idea of looking at the reality of it and and seeing that, yeah, you know, she still has to exist in that world, even as somebody who's been freed herself, like she can't just like completely remove herself from a society that bases so much of itself on enslaving people. You can't just just decide that you're not going to you're not going to partake in it at all because it's just not how it worked.
5: Yes, absolutely. You know, and people didn't have access necessarily to the belief system to understand how it was wrong. You know, the most enlightened people got was about being humane. And, you know, but so what? Ultimately, of course, better to be humane than, than cruel, but it's still wrong to own people. Um, so, yeah, and, and I thought it was... Imp- Important not to romanticize Amara's relationship with those new people she brings into her life, who who she owns. You know, she is smart enough to understand that they can't be friends. That they might have been friends in another context, but not in this one. Mm-hmm.
3: And she can choose to be, you know, as kind as possible in the situation, but still, you know, the situation is how it is, and so there's only so much
5: that one can do. Yeah, she's exploiting people and she knows she's exploiting people mm-hmm. um, and she tries to do it without cruelty. But, you know, ultimately, that's what she's doing.
3: It's almost more interesting just to, to have her be so aware of it, too, without. Yeah, I don't know. It, it It's just generally. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about the the ancient world and just how normal it was to own people and the context, too, because, you know, it was typically like due to war or like or just poverty and all those different reasons why people would end up enslaved it is is sort of fascinating in itself and i think it it also it provides a lot of the sort of the the reasoning for why people didn't have the ability to just look at it and say no it's 100% wrong to own people you know because that, it was just such a normal thing and it was based in these things that they could see the why it was like well we had no money we had to sell you or or like your city got taken and burned and so yeah it just this is the way it was
5: bad luck basically Mm. i I think that's a really interesting and quite different aspect to ancient slavery to say you know the transatlantic slave trade where they really tried to use some kind of moral justification for it and a racist basis for it that certain types of people um you know, deserve to be enslaved, which is actually much more repugnant than the ancient, I mean, all forms of slavery are repugnant. I'm not trying to say that Roman slavery was, was okay. But there was an element of this could happen to anyone. This is about bad luck, ultimately. Um, This isn't because one group of people are inherently, um, you know, deserve to be enslaved by another group of people. So I think that's, I think you're absolutely right that, that, that this is perhaps also why they didn't challenge it as much, because it was kind of a fact of life that could happen to almost anyone. Yes, as a, as a freeborn Roman citizen, you know, it wasn't meant to happen, but it still could, even, even if you were a freeborn Roman citizen and you fell on, you know, really, really hard times or um, you were a prisoner of war or whatever, it could happen to you. So, yeah, it, I guess um, people were much closer to it.
3: Mm -hmm. And even just writing about it, you have a good 2000 years of disconnect. And and obviously, that's going to make it a lot easier. But but it is, yeah, it is ultimately, it feel, uh, you know, it like you were trying to figure out the best way to phrase that, because obviously, yes, like, all forms of enslavement are bad, but you can see the difference um, when it's just like a, a something that your entire society is based on and is based on luck and just just like shit happening versus this like deep rooted racist ideas is yes
5: exactly and a racist ideology driving it rather than you know as you say something that happened to to people of all nationalities and colors and creeds
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I mean that's certainly the thing I try to remind my listeners all the time is they were all very bad to uh, to other people but it just wasn't based in explicit you know skin color racism in yeah. in ancient greece it's a lot about what language you spoke um not necessarily for enslavement but certainly if you spoke greek you were less likely to to have the issues so it's just yeah it's interesting to look at
5: it's almost more like xenophobia than racism mm-hmm. so it's a kind of uh prejudice against people because of where they're from rather than kind of who they are type thing
3: mm-hmm. yeah just so different from the world we live in now you know yeah, it's just it's an interesting thing to look back on. And I think important to, to point out that, I mean, I think a lot of people romanticize Greece and Rome, but Rome for different reasons, I think more so the the war aspect, the which is, gets a little bit different type of romanticization. But but Greece, it's like, you know, I think it's often forgot entirely that they also worked on entirely like on an enslaved cult as an enslaved culture and, and just this the, these darker aspects of them that I think often get forgotten in favor of the pretty sparkling marble buildings and everything
5: yeah and you know and that's part of it too and and it, it's that's why I really enjoyed writing I I did enjoy getting out of the the absolute darkness of the brothel I can't lie like I could not have set a whole trilogy in the Lupana I I, I really um felt passionate about writing that book and, you know, I hope there's a lot of hope and inspiration in it as well, but it was quite a dark place to be writing a book. Um, so there's a lot more of the kind of sparkling buildings and the lightness and the parties and the artwork um, in this book, particularly the interlude uh, at Pliny's place in Um, So we get to see that side of Roman life, but I did always want to be tied to... Whose eyes you're seeing it through, you know, through a woman's eyes, through enslaved people's eyes, or, you know, at most through freed people's lives. So, you know, Amara's got a foot in both camps in this book. Um, Enslavement because of her past and also because of the people she loves and the, the free world because of her new status as a freed woman and also the people whose patronage she needs to attract. Actually, one of my favourite characters to write, uh, Julia Felix, is is a real person from Pompeii, and it was interesting to write a woman like that. So she was a very powerful businesswoman in the town. She was illegitimate. Um, she was clearly a force to be reckoned with. You know, it's one of the only uh, public roads that got closed off for a private building is 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 hers. So um, you know, I had some male characters kind of peeved about this. Um, that she'd managed to get this through. And she won, she ran this kind of baths complex um, and apartments that she rented, luxury sort of site. And I just, yeah, I, I thought she would be somebody that Amara would admire. And in this story, you know, Amara befriends. Um, but that was that was interesting too, sort of thinking about okay, so she's, you know, she was an illegitimate woman. There's no mention of a husband. Um, in the inscription that we've got she's the sole owner of this sort of commercial complex and she obviously ran it pretty successfully
3: I was just going to lead the conversation into talking about the various women that you have in this book because I think it is so interesting to look at them and all the different the different ways that a woman could kind of exist in that world both like with a patron with a husband or rather I don't even there's not much in the way of, of husbands with with these characters but just the you know I'm gonna forget the other one's name now but Julia specifically was so interesting but then the 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 woman who the courtesan woman
5: Drusilla Yes. yes so yeah um I I loved writing Drusilla and um I mean Drusilla's from Ethiopia, so she was foreign um, to Pompeii, and she, like Amara, was enslaved. But unlike Amara, you know, she's independently wealthy now. She's a freed woman who's independently wealthy. Her patron's dead. Um, And, you know, set her up. So, yeah, she's... Because with courtesans, you know, there is this kind of hierarchy of the ones who have managed to... Very rare. I mean, the Drusillas were, were pretty unusual who've managed to amass some wealth that they do actually have more power to pick and choose who their lovers are who their patrons are it's not that they would just like pick some guy who wasn't rich <laughs> um, you know so they're still guided by that but I guess slightly more in common with modern relationship dynamics and in in many ways kind of Drusilla um, the courtesan who's you know independently um, wealthy, And Julia Felix, the businesswoman, have the most freedom of of any of the women in the book, Um, you know, because I did want to reflect that, I mean, ancient Roman women had more freedom in many ways than ancient uh, women from ancient Greece. Um, you know, they were much more out and about. They were much more involved in business. They could eat with men. You know, a dinner party would have women and men. So they were much more public facing. So, and in some ways, it's quite interesting because um, I've just been um, reading Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and I find it really interesting that he doesn't include Fulvia in his story of, of Caesar's assassination, even though she would have been Antony's wife, Fulvia, very kind of involved in that whole kind of political machinations. And there's some senses in which like Shakespeare's time was probably more patriarchal and oppressive than in ancient Rome for women. So it's, you know, it's it's quite, because we think of time being so linear and obviously, you know, our progress now today in the 21st century for women is, is infinitely superior to the ancient Romans. But it doesn't mean the progress for women has has been like, oh, every century, it just got better and better and better. You know, there, there there's stuff in the ancient Rome, actually, that I think is almost more identifiable than many later periods in terms of how it was for women.
3: Well, I think christianity was the sort of the cause for a lot of sort of the the backsliding we'll call it of like women's rights and everything because yeah i mean and even greece is so interesting because most of what we know is based on athens and athens was like particularly oppressive towards women so i'm always interested in in like what do we not know about the other regions and and everything and yeah, but but Rome is so interesting because women did have this extra power. I think I'm sure I said this last time we spoke, but mo- most of my knowledge of ancient Rome is based on on movies and and stars Spartacus series, which is not a great way to base <laughs> your history, but it's what I've got. But it, it's just generally interesting to me the way that women seem to hold this power and and I guess the way that they both chose and not to, not chose did not choose to, uh, to like utilize their sexuality to, to also gain more power and everything. I mean, it's dark that that is sort of their best option, but it is interesting to look at the ways that women could sort of harness, harness their own sexuality to get themselves into a better situation in life.
5: I mean, that's definitely one of the sort of major routes for women from that period. And it was, You know, for every success story, there would have been so many, many hundreds of of women who died in poverty, who tried that route, you know, whose ability to earn lasted such a brief period. And, you know, they didn't get that stability, but it but it was a route and some women did manage it. And um, I actually find it quite interesting. Uh, I I really like the playwright Terence, And he writes quite sympathetically or at least ambiguously about courtesans. You know, this notion that they have to be very manipulative, they have to be very ruthless, because if you were a nice sweetie pie, you're not going to make the money and then you're going to be poor and you're going to die poor and young. Whereas what you need is to just get the cash that you can. So that was, I mean, Amara remains, and I found it quite interesting. Some people who've read the book who are like, oh, she's not so likable, she's so obsessed with money. But you know, this is a reflection on the sort of negative stereotype of courtesans and sex workers of the time. But it's also, you know, she she has to be avaricious. This is the only way she's going to survive is is money. So, yeah, her kind of obsession with, with money and she's obviously got a lot of trauma from what happened in the wolf den. Um, and, you know, one of the things that makes her feel safe is... Is counting her money, is looking at what she's amassed. You know, this is her sense of security, and um, and that is very much rooted in sort of the life of Cord Sands at the time.
3: Yeah, she's. I mean, she feels pragmatic to me. Like she just recognizes that 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 is the only way out. But I also think it's interesting, the ways in which other characters interact with her obsession with money and and the way she feels that that is her only way out you know, she does have these people kind of pushing against it in different ways to sort of make her realize she's like that, not necessarily, you know, suggest that it is that she should be different, but sort of just like just kind of put it in her face a little bit that like this is, you know, what you have become at the same time. I mean, it seems valid to to become that way once you found the one thing that got you out of such a life to to just hold on to it for dear life.
5: And also one of the sort of main characters in this book is Dido, even though she's dead. And I know some people might be slightly surprised by some of the risks and decisions that Amara takes in this book, but really she takes them in the context of grief. Um, you know, she is driven by grief in this book. It's, it's a huge motivator for her in this sort of highly risky relationship that she, she goes, she undertakes. It's because she's lost the person she loved best and so I think this is also the reason why she clings to other other things like money or other relationships to give her that sense of stability and love that she had through Dido, because she she lost her best friend under really traumatic circumstances. And that felt important to me as well, actually, that I do find sometimes when you you read trilogies or, or you know books in a series, a character dies in one book and then like it's like they didn't exist when you read the second book, or they're referred to maybe once or twice. I mean amara is constantly thinking about dido um and reflecting on her and missing her and behaving you know some of some of the decisions she makes in golden door i don't think she would have made if if uh, dido had lived um you know would she have felt the need to form a close romantic connection with with a man um if she'd had her best friend you know maybe not who knows um it's so that was something that I was kind of looking at as as well, the relationships that people made in the ancient world. I think, you know, particularly when they'd been enslaved, a lot of the times their kind of found family was more important than anything else.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. You would kind of develop the most intensive connections with the people who are experiencing the same thing for you. And then when your life is full of trauma, you know being having to hold on to to that moment as well and just sort of build your life around making up for it or or just sort of existing around that kind of trauma I, I um I was really of course because I'm a mythology person um but I just love the the opening of sort of the reminder of Dido uh, with the the wall painting and the choice of of diana and action as the sort of i was sort of trying to picture what how it would be and i'm curious what were your thoughts around choosing that myth
5: so the diana and action myth is really um for me that represents amara and felix Mm. um because it's what he says to her in the wolf den that when he saw her in, in the slave market he thought of Diana because she's naked which is what you see as a sign of vulnerability but I mean obviously Felix doesn't describe it in this detail but you know he says you know you looked as if you would 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 tear apart any man who dared to see you naked because in the myth of Actaeon you know the goddess Diana Actaeon sees her naked um, bathing and so she turns him into a stag and he's torn apart by his own hounds so Felix recognizes in Amara this sort of really violent desire for vengeance and to assert herself and uh, to be powerful and at the end of the wolf den she sends him as a saturnalia gift you know a statuette of of diana um which is kind of her you know i don't want to swear but up yours type <laughs> thing that she's <laughs> yes her fuck you moment you know she's she's now now she's a freed woman um so uh, you know she's closer to being Diana so although it's a homage to Dido by painting Diana as Dido on the walls of the garden um, overseeing kind of the vengeance against Actaeon you know this is kind of a reminder of who Amara really is and what she what she wants but it was also based on very real frescoes from gardens in Pompeii so it's based on Um, A couple of, you know, there's the the House of the Beast Hunt and the House of the Say, who've got these, you know, extraordinary, particularly the the Casa de Say, you know, extraordinary hunting scenes, quite violent hunting scenes across the garden. So that was how I visualised it was both kind of the relevance of the myth to Amara and Felix, but also, you know, some of the scenes that you actually see in Pompeii of these extraordinary kind of wild animal hunts on the wall of the gardens.
3: The, the scenes in pompeii are just so unbelievable i got a big book that i found at a used bookstore and i just want to pour over it all the time just the yeah it's just incredible um one of my favorites completely separate from any of this but is the the one where dionysus is dressed up as grapes
5: yes it's so bizarre isn't it That's actually, that's so true that some of the stuff in Pompeii that survived is just so peculiar. I mean, for me, it was the cock lamps. Just, I could not believe. Like, these giant penises with these little horrible little guys attached that people had these as lamps. Like, so gross. But, um, (laughs) yeah, and so alien. Um, But you were much more classy and went for Dionysus dressed in grapes. I was straight in there with the cock lamps, sorry.
3: No, (laughs) I mean, you're the The ancient world, generally, the obsession with just penises on everything yeah. is amazing to me. I was discussing the great Dionysia uh, with a guest recently, and and it's really, I mean, Seder plays specifically, but even just like the whole the opening procession that they would do to introduce the big, you know, the the tragedy festival that now we think we look back at these Greek tragedies as these, you know, masterpieces of art, and they are. But they existed at a festival that was just like people waving dicks on sticks all around town,
5: <laughs> like a hen party, but worse. Yeah,
3: truly, yeah. And so I—I I mean, we have all those stories from from ancient Athens, like five hundred, six hundred years before, and then the fact that it all exists in Pompeii as well. Like, I just I do appreciate the way the love of just cock representation just spanned the whole of the mediterranean seemingly or at least the northern part
5: yeah there's definitely a, a big abs- penis obsession going on and actually um yeah and and a lot of this sexual art as well and there's been that discovery uh, quite recently in Pompeii of that chariot uh where well, it's actually just outside of Pompeii, a big villa. And that's got these medallions of like quite violent sexual scenes going on. Um and I put that in the book as well. I had it we, we don't really know what that chariot was for. It might have been for religious festivals, it might have been for high class weddings. Uh, it would have been, you know, pretty extraordinarily impressive sort of scarlet chariot. But um I, I included it in the house of the golden doors as a prop that's used for the floralia because of these sort of very sexualized um medallions so yeah i found it you know the thing is we don't know really how a lot of these things were used for sure um obviously there are much greater experts than me who've made you know great sort of guesses as to what it could be but i just thought well why not why not have it in the floralia it's not impossible but I
3: think that's what fiction is so good for. And I, I'm i sort of similar in the book that I may or may not ever finish, but of just trying to, like, I, I have such a long list of little references, little, like, tiny things I have found over the years that I want to put in different places as just, yes. like, odes, yeah, to, like, to everything we do and don't know, but the things we have, whether we know what they mean or not. But and I mean, it, mythology is so similar of just fragmentary pieces of you know one person wrote this like really bizarre, completely different take on on somebody, and then like fifteen other people have written the st- the straightforward myth, and then you got to wonder who this one person off in the distance is coming up with something totally seemingly nonsensical, but like we don't know. It could it could be something we're just totally missing out on, and yeah, so. Uh, I appreciate the use of like whatever little thing you would come across to be able to pluck it into your story is so satisfying.
5: Yeah. I love all that. I mean, I had to ditch a ton of stuff as well because in the end you, so, you know, like quite a lot of things that we know about Roman daily life. I didn't necessarily put it all in like, because it, it can slow it down. And then it's like, you're explaining, explaining daily life so much. So I did take some liberties and just like cut stuff out too. But, yeah, I wanted to put enough in there that people get a real sense of the time and place and the strangeness of it the way that it's quite alien,
3: yeah, was there anything you had to cut that you're particularly sad to have missed out on, or generally anything that you want to share that you love but had to cut?
5: um gosh, that's actually probably gonna have to have a real think about that, so, I guess I guess just kind of stuff around the objects um there was nothing. There was nothing sort of massive or like loads of detail. I guess the stuff that I cut, like lots of detail about clothing or household gods or like table manners or whatever, that in the end I just thought, oh wow, this is quite a long book anyway. <laughs> Let's just have them eat, <laughs> um, you know, without like endless descriptions of foot washing or whatever. Um, yeah, so there's nothing that I sort of cut out that I just thought, oh. You know, I'm really gutted that I left that out. It's quite a long book. I was quite greedy.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I I appreciate the it's interesting because like the, the Wolf Den looks so thick on on in print. And I have the the obviously the advanced copy of the house with the golden door and it's so so like succinct it looks like and then you're going through and you're like no no there's still there's a lot of pages in here and in, in a good way um but i read the the wolf den last year i read it on my ipad and so i it didn't register to me how long it was which is good that means that i was just like reading it and enjoying it but then i got to the end i was like oh yeah that was quite a long book <laughs> like you actually <laughs> look at it compared to others I'm like oh no there's a, quite a few hundred pages in that but they're well used because if you don't stare at a book and thinking like oh my god how am I only halfway then that's that's certainly a good
5: sign yeah <laughs> yeah I hope I hope I hope the pages turn quite quickly <laughs>
3: <laughs> absolutely just like the last one I, I I'm discovering more and more about what I now know is ADHD and not that I am lazy um but I I have to work on a deadline so which means like I think with Wolf Den I read it like in one day before I talked to you and in this one I, oh. I this one I gave myself four days so that's
5: impressive though
3: (laughs) but even still I'm like you know it's one of those things I and I'm not just trying to just throw compliments at you but I also think it's it's nice but I really just like I read it so easily and I was just like okay I have to get through it and I'm like oh this is not a chore at all I actually gave myself like five hours this morning to finish it and I finished it like two hours earlier than I planned and I was very (laughs) I was impressed
5: (laughs) oh that's really nice to know (laughs)
3: Yeah, I really yeah I just generally very much appreciate these books I do think it is that that thing that I need that I don't realize I needed until I'm in these ones of I live too much in mythology but I still want the ancient world so I just very much appreciate an, if really detailed ancient world book that doesn't have me thinking about my day quote-unquote day job <laughs> like, quite so
5: much yeah and it, it is you know it plays on a lot of the sort of it's not like a retelling by any stretch the imagined what nation whatsoever but you know like the sort of Diana Actian thing you know it plays on a lot of the kind of ideas of um, of power struggle of sex of um, you know betrayal all these kind of things that are in the myths I, I you know put the drama in there as well for, for the books Um, and yeah, and just, you know, as we were saying earlier in the myths, you know, you've got like the enslaved women kind of wafting around, um, but they don't have anything to say really for themselves. So yeah, again, it's, it's kind of looking at the world of the myths, um, in a slightly different way.
3: Yeah. Just giving women voices and power in a way that, I mean, I, I think that's what's great about a lot of like explicitly mythological retellings these days. But I also think it's equally important in just in books about just the ancient world, you know, it just this idea that just because it was a certain way for women doesn't mean that they didn't have their own, you know, inner thoughts and feelings and actions. Yes. Right. We just, we don't see what they were doing and what they were thinking, but that doesn't mean they weren't doing and thinking. (laughs)
5: Absolutely. Yeah, I feel really passionately about this. And just like with, uh, you know, there is an acknowledgement, oh, yeah, you know, enslaved people wouldn't have been happy with their lot. Women wouldn't have been happy with their lot either. You know, some women, of course, would, you know, people do internalize um Negative views of themselves, and you know, some people would have been very happily married and happily been mothers, and and you know, embraced the very traditional role. Of course, you know, uh, if they were lucky enough to be married to somebody nice, but you know, lots of women who were incredibly intelligent and ambitious, or just deeply dissatisfied with their lives, would have would have resented a lot of this stuff, you know. And the sort of uh, lust for power in the elite is just as strong with the women as the men um You know, so why wouldn't it have been lower down the social scale as well? um And that's something that I find quite heartening with some of the evidence in Pompeii when, like, Terentius Neo and his wife, they were, uh, I think, bakers, but like the fresco of them is very famous. They're kind of painted as equals, you know, holding the tools of, she's like holding like uh, implements of literacy, and they look like a team. You know, um, so you feel like oh, and yeah, and women like Julia Felix, you know, successful business women as well. So, I guess um, where the Wolf Den really did look at just how crappy it could be for women. Uh, it's a, it's, it. Things have improved with the House of the Golden Door. <laughs> you know, um, we get a bit more of a sense of how women could create more space for themselves.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it's just so important to to look at those stories and 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 real you know quote-unquote real like by that I just mean history not mythology um but yeah you know real people in that world navigating that stuff because as much as a lot of angry men typically on the internet want you to believe that it was just that it's the way it was and so we don't need to look back critically on it like that's utter nonsense and and I think I mean it's it's why I have my podcast so I'm thrilled when I get to talk to other people who see that same issue of you know I think it is so important to look back at, at these women and, and what they were doing and, and how they were. Yeah. Taking up space is such a good phrase that you just used to describe what they were doing, just making up, making space for themselves. Um, because, I mean, it it's obviously just as applicable today. We don't, we, we don't live in a, in an equal society for men and women. And, and so, you know, looking at, looking at how women have, have tried to make their place, you know, 2000 years ago yeah is is so important as well and just interesting and like a nice thing to read
5: well thank you (laughs) uh
3: well i mean honestly this has been so much fun i love that you're you were good to go on just making it a conversation
5: and oh yeah absolutely always, always happy to chat with you it's really cool
3: i feel the same it's this has just been so fascinating thank you so much i really just enjoy reading your books and i enjoy talking to you so thank you for coming back on the show
5: Honestly, Liv, it's such a joy to come on the show. I love the podcast. I love chatting to you. Thank you for having me.
3: Thank you. It, It means a lot as well that people continue to want to come back and chat with me and just kind of hang out and talk about ancient stuff. So thank you. Uh, thank you, nerds. As always, I really love talking with Elodie and learning more about ancient Pompeii every time. It's such a fascinating look into the ancient world that we just don't have elsewhere. That volcano gave us so much, even if, you know, it was probably pretty shitty for the people who lived and died in Pompeii. But thanks to it, we have the mosaic of Dionysus dressed in grapes. And I mean in grapes. In grapes. Standing near a way-too-big snake and a way-too-small leopard. (sighs) Google it. It is a work of absolutely bizarre and brilliant art. Plus, you know, cock lamps. Cock lamps everywhere. Actually, penises literally everywhere. Pompeii is a wealth of penises. And on that note, please check out Elodie's two books, The Wolf Den and The House with the Golden Door. Both are now available in North America and in the UK. And probably elsewhere too, I'm not entirely sure, but definitely those two English markets. You can also follow Elodie on Twitter and Instagram. I have linked to both of those in the episode's description. And stay tuned for the third book in her series. I know I am waiting, not so patiently. (laughs) Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all, you're the best. I am Liv, and I love this shit. (laughs)